Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. I'm with my friend now. You're going to help me with pronunciation. Johan Furnes. Johan Furnes, yes. Johan Furnes. Yes. Is that better? It's fine. It's fine. Okay. In his and his wife's beautiful apartment, uh, which part of Stockholm are we in? Yeah, on Södermalm, the same part as Joran Bolin lives in, and many other colleagues as well. It's a southern south of the old town of Stockholm and it's an old working class area which has been of course gentrified but still is very diverse compared to some other places. Is it? Of mm. It is very much of a cultural center of Stockholm mm. with um, journalists living here and uh, cultural people but still um, if you look at uh, income and voting figures and so on you can see that there is a, still some kind of diversity compared to the other parts of the Stockholm inner city. And so are there migrants here also? Yes, but fewer, of course, than if you go right. to the suburbs. Right. They still got the suburbs. Yeah. Well, it's very exciting to be here. I'm having quite a day of it. This is the second of four podcasts I'm planning to do today. And my first one... Oh, in fact, I need before I forget, I need to plug this in. We can keep talking. Okay. My first one was with your former PhD student, Jöran Berlin. Yes, Berlin. Yes. Yep. See, I'm practicing. I'm getting this. Yes. Um, let me get this plug before I forget. Yeah. As you can see, it's, uh, it's this fun. Is all, this is all. Um, this is what Julia Lesage calls handmade media. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. I think it's and alternative media production. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's not. It's not. It, um, it has an aura around it, doesn't it? It's, it's not Stockhausen or Led Zeppelin. No, um, but it's. It's not Pink Floyd or Genesis. No. It's not Aha or Abba. But uh, uh, you know, we have. You have to have it there. I, I think. I'm there. sorry oh, because okay, we so don't we, have. Need to move this a little bit. Yeah, we can put it on this. Maybe. Okay. Yep. But and then move sides, or is it? I should have been thinking before that. No, maybe if you sit. Well, shall we start again? No, no, no. This is good because this, you know, with someone as professional as you are, it's very good to destabilize the norms. You, you know, and make it a little bit more amateurish. Yeah, yeah. quite like okay. that. That's good. Yep. Like that in around there. Thank you. But you've got to get your cup of tea. I'll get my cup of tea now. And, and there is some. Just about fit there. Let me just reach this round. Now, I met you about four or five years ago, I think for the first time, in Stockholm. Yes. At a conference that Jöran organized. Yes. I think that was when we first met and You were yes. involved too. I wasn't involved. I was just a participant at that time. Yeah. So I was uh, about to begin at Sogitron University, where I now work. Right, right, right. I hadn't started yet. And I suppose because I think of Joran as being very senior in media and cultural studies in general, and obviously particularly in Sweden, that makes you very, very senior. I am very senior, yeah. Right. Um, And the more people I speak to in Sweden about media studies and cultural studies, the more your name is mentioned, and okay. I'm very aware that you founded AXIS, the Advanced Cultural Studies Institute of Sweden, where I've been fortunate enough to be a visitor for the last week. It's uh, at the Norrköping campus of Linköping University. And now you're back here in Stockholm yeah. at uh, Södertörn, where Jöran is. But I think you're part-time there, is uh, that right? I am. I was until October. No, I'm full time actually. Oh, you are but, okay. but I have, uh, you, maybe you refer to that. I have a kind of, we have a, some partial pension status. So I am at 20% of, uh, as, because I am six, or, well, I'm 62 years old. So yeah. I have a couple of years more to go. But um, it's a thing you can negotiate and get right. here. Which but people makes, like us always thought of ourselves as young. Yes. And as breaking boundaries and doing new yeah, things. Yeah. So what's it like for us now? Yeah, it, I think it is a bit difficult to get uh, older <laughs> and to find your place. And uh, I am always, I've always considered myself as among the youngest, but of course it's changed already since I noticed since uh, the 80s when suddenly I appeared to become more leading, taking initiatives and yeah. having younger people around me. Yeah. But I was used from before to be the youngest. I, since I started school at one year old, younger than the average, I was six when I started my school, which normally is at seven. And already, and I remember my first years at the university where I studied at Lund University. I always thought of myself as younger than the others. Younger than the And I, I was pulled into the 
the alternative left, you could say, in the early 70s. And uh, there, most of them were born in the 40s. I was born in 52. So they were at least five years older, which yeah, meant yeah. something when you are 20, 25. It, it feels yeah. a certain difference. And so I identified myself as such. But but I think I get, I'm getting used to it. I, I am, actually. But it's more... I think it's not so much the age problem, but more maybe the activity that I work too hard in a way. And I, I want to find a way to uh, go down, but it's not so that easy to um, diminish your work burden if you are such a working horse that yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And automatically. You are, you're a remarkably prolific publisher, researcher, and you're also an innovative administrator, um, <laughs> if I can use that term. Innovative, yeah. it sounds almost criminal, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, what I mean is that you've tried to set up structures that are beyond yeah. your own research. Yeah, that's true. And that is a very difficult thing to do and yeah. pretty thankless. Mm. Uh, it doesn't really gain you many merit points, as no. it were. But I wondered if we could start by talking about Axis and what you were mm. doing when you set it up, and then maybe we could talk about the journal that you've recently mm. left as ed chief editor of, Culture Unbound. yes. And then we could talk a bit about your current research. How does that sound? That sounds very fun. I'd love to get this Olympian synoptic yeah, view. You decide. It sounds great. <laughs> now, Axis, that was an interesting um, uh, project. I, I came to think about it in the mid-90s uh, when I worked at Stockholm University for a while. And um, I thought it would... I had tried to set up different things for, for youth, culture research and popular culture research, more cultural perspectives in media studies. And... There were some conflicts around that, and it also needed to be interdisciplinary. So I, I was thinking about some other forms that could be possible. So I thought of making, I suggested to Stockholm University and the art uh, colleges that are around, not belonging to Stockholm University, but separate ones for art, uh, art and design and so on, yeah. and different. And I tried to, I had a proposal and tried to get them interested in setting up a kind of center for cultural studies which could help them and get uh, attract interesting people and also, also organize research schools or seminars and different activities around well, cultural interdisciplinary perspectives in cultural studies yeah. cultural research but it was difficult because these were so they were often hostile to each other the different uh, schools they didn't want to cooperate so and then I moved to Linköping University and got a job there in from 2000, and then so I transferred the plans to Santos Linköping University, you could say, and organized first a workshop with some people, also international people like Janice Radway and Simon Frith were invited, for example. Mm -hmm. And we, and this workshop uh, point was aimed at suggest, su suggesting that such a center should be set up somewhere in Sweden, and finally it landed in Linköping University where I worked and they just gave some support for it and they got, also got national support. So we started this center which is, was meant for uh, improve, for advancing cultural studies, we call it, uh, uh, that is uh, both uh, representing, uh, both creating um, collaborations between universities, between yeah. disciplines and also between Swedish cultural research and in the international current or traditional cultural studies, you mm. could say, um, which in a smaller scale uh, took off and quite well and worked fine, I think, with visiting scholars and these biennial um, conferences that we mm. organized in mm. Norwich. And how would you describe Swedish cultural studies 15 years ago as opposed to now? Mm. Oh, that was a difficult question. I, mm. I, it's hard to say. You mean if, if we have contributed something? Of course, maybe we have become more um, self-conscious in a way through these activities. That there, for example, this axis has an in, one of its uh, interesting function is that it has a board. It sounds very boring because it doesn't sound so interesting. You have to have a board to see or something. But in this case, the board itself is a really fine resource because the board has one representative of each Swedish university mm. and those are acknowledged by their universities. It's a, a vice chancellor of the university who formally appoints each wow. one. This yeah. gives it a kind of status and yeah. at the same time these yeah. people are really interested. They are professors and they are working in cultural research. So they meet every semester once yeah. in Norrköping 
And this meeting is in itself important, not only for what they decide to do together, but also for the information they give to each other and they keep each other updated about what happens at different universities. And this has helped, I think. So there have been some, during this year, some activities for supporting the humanities, for example, and supporting the collegiality in Swedish universities and so on and so on. And so there's an institutionalization, which is one of mm. those words that yeah. cultural studies people often abjure, yeah. perhaps to their regret, because there's a value in having yeah. the support and the recognition from senior administrators of the kind you have when a vice-chancellor is nominating yeah. his or her delegate to such a board. Mm. Yeah. I, think, uh, institutional, I think institutionalization is definitely, uh, well, you know, sense necessary, and it can be, but you have to know that it... You have to be aware that it can be of different kinds. I mean, I am against. I'm actually against um, thinking of cultural studies as a discipline. It it need not be disciplinary. Uh, I I think cultural well in some places cultural studies is seen as a discipline. Perhaps in Britain more than elsewhere. In Sweden, as we have thought about it, it's it's definitely not a discipline. It's more it's an interdisciplinary field rather. Mm-hmm. I would say so, but it can still be institutionalized. You, but it just doesn't need to be institutionalized as a discipline, which is a bit different, I think. Because if if we think of it as interdisciplinary from the beginning, you have no ambitions of forming the full uh, educational program, for instance, with uh, yeah. cultural studies from the basic level until the PhD. You can as well think of it as, as something that you can organize on different levels, but uh, you don't demand people to follow it from the beginning to the end. But instead, it's... Uh, I think Tony Bennett once wrote that it's a kind of a, an interchange. Uh, uh, cultural studies have functioned as a, a, a node where different disciplines, but also different interdisciplinary fields, interact with each other. Yeah. And this is how we have formed it in Sweden, I think, more. But I know that some colleagues, not, not least in Britain, think of it otherwise. Sure. And that's also why... I think that's partly also why it has been cri- criticized by others because they find that it doesn't uh, have that coherence or, uh, well, as it should have if it was a true discipline, whatever that is. Right. Because disciplines are, of course, also are always constructions. Well, it's interesting that Axis birthed this very exciting journal five years ago mm-hmm. that you've been instrumental in the foundation and running of yes. during that time, Culture Unbound, and we were at a meeting uh, in Nordshopping last yeah. week about the future of the journal and its past and present, where we learned how many robots read the journal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they were el- eliminated. Uh, they were turned out. <laughs> robots were eliminated. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. They were cleansed from this earth. Yeah. Uh, Culture Unbound has been a remarkable success. I was interested in my podcast with Martin and Johanna yeah. that they said it was not defining itself as a cultural studies journal. No, when we started it, I mean, the Axis Center is called Cultural Studies. It has Cultural Studies in its name. But um, yeah. when we started the journal, we thought, we knew that the name Cultural Studies is, or the term, or the, the, the current or direction that's called mm. Cultural Studies, is, is a bit controversial and... Uh, there are people, unlike me, us, unlike us, who don't identify with cultural studies and to think, but they, they also do cultural research. They do interdisciplinary cultural research as well. And they, and they would feel alienate, alienated and not wanting maybe to submit manuscripts to a journal yeah, which right. has that name. But, so we chose to call the journal, the subtitle of the journal is uh, Journal of Current Cultural Research instead then. I think it's the same considerations that they had in in Sydney at uh, Ian Ang and uh, Tony Bennett and others when they when they first set up the what it was called Centre for Cultural Research for a while, but it's changed its name. I think it's now an institute of yeah, institute of culture. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they had a similar. I regret, regret that people don't want to identify with cultural studies because it could as well serve as this. Oh, very big mm. umbrella for everything <laughs> almost but maybe it's good in some instances that cultural studies appears more as a specific tradition where you have a certain common heritage so to speak whereas 
for the journal at least we wanted to attract others as well who don't who are skeptical against cultural studies but like cultural could, research. Could you tell us a bit about that as it plays out in Sweden? I'm not asking you to name names, but what are the tendencies that tend to associate in favour of cultural studies in Sweden versus against? What are the arguments? And yeah, the, the argument for cultural studies, for example, I was yeah. recently, I was uh, the other day in Göteborg and spoke at a seminar, and then I talked to some people there, and they have, they have actually quite much of a program called cultural studies, and they, but within those, when they set them up, they, some are more cultural studies oriented. When they think of themselves as more cultural studies oriented, they use the cultural studies term in English then. In, in Swedish the translation would be Kulturstudier which we nowadays uh, I, I at least uh, use as a direct translation but uh, they, even in Swedish names they use cultural studies sometimes which um, tends to reify it in a way and to show that this is an, an English anglophone tradition. Ah. That it's like um, and I think but I think those who are, are those of us maybe who are in favor of it, we we think of it as maybe being more political in nature, I think, than just cultural research. With cultural research, it just has to do with culture in some way, with meaning production or with textual analysis or right. something like that. Right. Whereas if you are a cultural studies, that isn't enough. You also have to think about power and and resistance or uh, some some. Yeah, some such elements, I think, more critical elements. So, right. so I would say that cultural studies is at least, to my mind, a more critical cultural research, which, which on the other hand, also includes uh, f the f work in the Frankfurt School tradition, yeah, and critical theory, which I am very fond of. I, I, I think they are. It's perfectly possible to combine those two. Whereas, yeah. but it's it's not, for example, for many people in Britain, it's they are they are different camps. So you are either a critical theory or you are in cultural studies, I think. Whereas here it's, and also I know that in East Asia, in Latin America and many other places, they do like we, we they think it's fully possible. But I know that you can find very few British cultural studies people who also, in a positive way, uses Habermas or Adorno. Or so. yeah. But yeah. Uh, here you can. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting. That, that's, that's fascinating. So some of it is, in a sense, methodological nationalism, some of the rejection of cultural studies. Mm. Some of it is... It's maybe a fear of uh, politics. Maybe they yeah. want to get have academia need that always be about power and resistance. They want to just do historical research on yeah. whatever. For, for the sake of inquiry. For the sake of inquiry. Yeah, exactly. yeah. sure, sure. And I can, but I can to some extent respect that. And I don't think that... I've also, I think that uh, academic research needs to have a certain autonomy from from everyday politics in order to be efficient when it intervenes in everyday politics. I'm a little bit, I know that Pierre Bourdieu in one of his, in, his, in a postscript to one of his works, writes about the international of the intellectuals and because he thinks that, even though you think that Bourdieu is very much um, a criticizer of uh, for example, various like academic uh, elites, <laughs> mm -hmm. but in mm -hmm. in a sense, he was uh, defending the relative autonomy, you could say, of the universities, not as an ivory tower to isolate yourself within, but instead as a resource, a unique resource that we can use for making effective interventions in the political discussion as academics and in that sense I, I've always been a bit skeptical to those who formulate themselves as if they think that cultural studies and cultural research generally should become politics or should be a social movement and so on. It can be linked I think to social movements and should have a, should care about social movements and politics but I'm I am a bit skeptical to being letting research be reduced to mm -hmm. politics. Mm -hmm. So I'm a bit of an autonomist there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you are a certain kind of autonomist. A relative autonomist. <laughs> yeah, a relative autonomist. <laughs> Academic autonomist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I think like that there are some routines we have for knowledge production that uh, of course in a way underpin a, a power position that we have in society but also our result in certain kind of insights and critiques mm. that would be hard to produce outside this 
knowledge system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's a long discussion. Yes, I think you're right. Oh, you do? Yeah, I do. That's fine. I do. My agenda is set by really four visions. One vision is what interests me, so there is inquiry and the desire for it. Yeah. One is what social movements that I subscribe to, I'm interested in, follow, mm. admire, mm. say matters. Mm. Definitely. Um, the third is what the state of scholarship is on a topic. Mm. And the fourth is what the general public's interest appears to mm. be. And so these are the things that mm. determine what I study and how I study oh, it and where I publish about it. So without having theorized this very adequately as you have, I think mm. that amounts to acknowledging the need for some relative autonomy mm. for academia, whilst also recognizing that the issue of that autonomy is not one that begins at all with the left and the idea of social mm. movements. It begins with engineers, mm. with architects, with business schools, mm. with medicine, with scientifically derived patents. You yeah. know, we are really yeah. minor players in Definitely. the implication of the university yeah. in the everyday structures of the social. And so even more reason, in a certain sense, for saying committed scholarship is actually the norm Mm. It's just that it's not committed scholarship in terms of social movements. Mm. And that some of the best work we can do to help social movements is to find out what turns them on and interests them, but then go away and find out where the science leads us. Mm. I agree. We agree. So I think I think this has to do with that. Uh, there has been much struggle the last years here around collegial management and count as against the line management, it was called. Uh -huh. I don't know the English term for that. Line management yeah. is the term used. Uh, because, of course, the trend is, the neoliberal trend is yeah. towards the latter to get what they think is effective management. And yeah. to, Whereas we want to defend uh, collegiality, and uh, and that, to a certain extent, might seem conservative or, because, or traditionalist, because we defend the old... Uh, no, but that's elitist uh, groups where worker autonomy and professors decide and so on. But it's worker participation. Exactly, you it's can say that. Also. Management. It's actually yes. a long-standing Scandinavian yeah, tradition, yeah, not I just Scandinavian, it. Northern yeah, European so. tradition. And I absolutely concur with that. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I find appalling uh, when I lived in the United States was that I would get invited to do things in Europe or Australia, and they would say, "Please supply us with a signature of approval from your supervisor." And I would say, I don't have a fucking supervisor. <laughs> I'm a professor. Not, which, as you know, in the US simply means I'm mm. an academic. It doesn't mean I'm a full no. professor or anything. So, you know, I'm the reason I took this job is so I wouldn't have one of these yeah, exactly. people. Mm, of course. But, of course, now, you, well, in the United States, you can get away with that. But mm. here, I don't know about it in Sweden, but in Britain, you have a line manager mm. and mm. you have key performance indicators and you have mm. meetings mm. to see whether you're meeting. Oh, it's attaining planned standards and so on. And I see absolutely no relationship between this and the creation of more or more valuable content. No. Nothing. No. It is governmentalization for its own sake. Anyway, I, okay. didn't, I didn't come to your beautiful home no. in order to Let's, shout at you. No. And you show that I agree with you. I came here to learn okay. more about okay. your work. Okay. So let's get back to that. One of the things that you told me when we were chatting uh, last week in uh, Norshopping was that you started out in mathematics I did. and then moved on to musicology. And I wondered if we could talk about that because my laptop that is recording our conversation is sitting on top of your beautifully illustrated yeah. doctoral thesis <laughs> yes. on musicology. So let's get to the math and the musicology. Well, I was, when I was in my teenage years, I was interested in mathematics very much I, and actually in physics as well and so on. And I, I even went to the Olympic Games of Mathematics, which is for wow. young people, so it's not, it's not so fun as it sounds. But I was in, in Hungary at the final there, which was <laughs> interesting. So I wanted to study mathematics, of course, and I wanted to be a researcher, but in mathematics some. But then which I you came... have to do before you're 30, right? Because after 30 yeah, mathematicians, after, yes. they can't do yeah, anything. Yeah, no, I think so. It's like, right? it's like, it happens very young. Yeah. Right. Prodigy is the norm. I think so too. But uh, I came to the university in 1970 then and I became, I was also interested, socially interested in, so I became involved in anti socialist, anti-militaristic work which, in a group that worked with that. 
and uh, I start, soon started finding this mathematics very boring. Uh, both uh, <laughs> politically, it was hard to defend. I mean, to what yeah. social use is there yeah. for evolution or something with doing mathematics? No, I couldn't find any op option for that. And also, it was socially boring because the mathematics people were not so interesting, and it was a boring thing to see. So we had a little blip in the recording there, which sometimes happens with this technology. Johan was just explaining uh, to us, though, as listeners will be aware, that mathematics seemed to be a little solitary and a little dull yeah. and a little disengaged from the it's, social movements. You formulated much better than I could. So I, I um, basically, well, to make a long story short, I, I went. I became proletarized because I was part of that movement where you were supposed to go out and work in industry work. So I worked two years at a Volvo factory and another metal industry. Right. Uh, before, but when I stood there, I thought I also did some other jobs more um, on the left side as an editor or a publisher in a publishing company, and also working for a music journal um, for one year. Um, but I decided that I wanted to go back and then to musicology, which was more of a Lesser interest from there. Can I cut in there for a moment? Were you a Maoist? Was this no? Part of I wasn't. I was not a Maoist. I was uh, uh, part of a well, communist, a socialist, or maybe it's called a road socialism. I don't know. Council, you know, like uh, uh, I was. In, I was particularly inspired by a German group called Socialistische Bureau. Which was led by Oscar Necht, who is quite oh, yes. Um, yes. Uh, led, but he was part of that. And, and Kim Kluger, right? Yeah, the, the Alexander public, Kluger. Public sphere, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the those, filmmaker. Those were those, so it was a more kind of intellectual and non-Leninist, uh, but socialist and not not anarchist, more socialist. Okay, but you did Marxist, have to Marxist. But you did have to retrain yourself Leninist. by becoming a worker in a sort of Maoist. Yeah, Maoist. it was almost like that. Yeah, yeah. a bit. Like, yeah, or yeah, maybe, okay. maybe, yeah. It was also because I found this academic career in mathematics when came to an end and I couldn't see any future in that. So yeah. I didn't know what to do. So I worked these two right. years. But then I decided to go back and instead to musicology because that was more fun. And maybe I could be... It suddenly struck me when I was in this factory that I could perhaps become a researcher not in natural sciences or mathematics any longer, but instead in musicology, which I haven't taken seriously before because it was more... A, for me. Music was something you loved. I liked music much and uh, listened to music and I played a little bit, but I never played for an audience, but only for myself. But I, I like music much. And what? I and that. In fact, music's been a theme of much of your research. Yeah, it has. What, what kind of music were you listening to at the time? At that time, I listened much to rock music and to, um, there was a Swedish, uh, we call it the alternative music movement, which, which played uh, more so politically engaged rock music mainly. It was oh. unusually well organized in Sweden compared to many other countries. I remember we once went to, I went with a small group to London to visit uh, people from Music for Socialism and other groupings there. They were curious about the Swedish movement because it was yeah. much more, much bigger, you could say. They had like 5% of the music market were produced by record companies and so on related to this movement. So I was I started studying that movement. So my thesis was about one uh, part of that music movement. I was interested. I used Oscar Necht and Alexander Kluge's work on the counter public spheres uh, in my ana analysis of this movement. So that's. And th I think their their article is in English in New German Critique. Yeah, I think from so. about yeah. 1972 or 1980, maybe yeah, they, something. It like was that published in German in 72. German in uh, 72, and English maybe five or six years I later. I don't know. Yeah, I mean the book was that. published. The article, I don't know which article, but they, the the book is a very thick book. Which, yeah, but was that ever in English actually? I think it's published in English, it, it yes, English, but later, yeah. but I forgot when. In the beginning, early eighties, maybe. And then Kluger went on to be a kind of commercial television director, didn't he? Yeah, I think so too. They actually they wrote at least one other other very thick book, which was called History and Eigensinn, which means I don't know that what that means. I don't in English. <laughs> so, so the thesis comes out. Yep. And the thesis comes out in '85, and uh, I have then moved to Stockholm actually because I met my wife two years earlier oh, here at uh, Mar. She was organizing uh, something called the Marxist People's University, which was uh, mm -hmm. an open university uh, held once a year at that time. And I was speaking there together with two colleagues who we had together been in, started 
becoming active in uh, youth culture research and in the mm. debate, also public debate around that. So in 83, we met at such an event and we became a couple very quickly. And I moved to Stockholm in 83 and 85, I made my dissertation in Göteborg where I studied. And I then continued here in what became media and communication studies. Because there, in that media and communication, among those people, they had uh, an interest also for popular culture and cultural studies. Right. So right. Uh, other colleagues like Stefan Eriksson, for instance, was there also. And Jöran Bolin came there also. So we were many. So this, but this yeah, kind of leftism is interested in the popular, but it's also interested in alternative movements, musics, forms of social arrangement. Were you also interested in what was then known as mass culture, mass media? Definitely, what was, I was your view on that? I was. I wrote much about that. Yeah, I was very interested in that. Uh, of course, the movement was, in a way, the music movement was very hostile to, because it was a competitor to that. But I always, uh, I wrote articles in the late seventies and early eighties about, uh, uh, for example, against the theory of a popular music conspiration because we were, or the manipulation, we were against, of course, like everyone in country studies is against Adorno's... Uh, yes, we all know thesis. this is wrong. We yeah. all know that audiences are incredibly powerful and smart. Yeah, that's what we thought at that time. <laughs> <That's> so, <laughs> we all know. Right? So I, uh, that's something uh, I argued for then. So I was sure, curious and sure. wanted to study popular music, but in my yeah. thesis it was more... Less. Yeah, these alternative movements. But then when I continued after that, I... I have written much about uh, more mainstream or less, uh, not only movements and alternative culture like that, but also more mainstream, like jazz music or let's pick, music. Let's pick up a couple of your books at this point, shall we? Because you kindly brought them along today, a number yeah, of them, some in English, some in Swedish. And let's, let's start looking at them. Maybe we could look at them chronologically, do you think? Yeah, we can do. Um, and you could talk about some of the developments in your <laughs> ideas and your work as we go through yeah. them. So, um, your dissertation... The dissertation was about this alternative movement right. with seen from a pop, uh, counter public, public sphere theory, basically. Yeah. And, uh, but also, um, it was about music theatre, so it was more of a close reading also. It was also kind of right. intermediate interpretation, because this uh, music theatre show that I started was also transformed into a film, and uh, there was uh, and a record, so I tried to... I made efforts to do intermediality research. And, and, you could and say. the book, uh, which is now 25 years old probably? Uh, yes. yes. Oh no, 30 years. 30 years old, because, has yeah. not only you know musical transcription, but uh, it also has images, photographs I mean, yeah. of these performances. And, and also I made interviews with those um, who participated in the show and asked them about the scenes in the yeah. show. So right. I, I juxtaposed those in different columns in the I continued that together with two colleagues. Uh, we wrote, we made another project immediately after my dissertation, which was where we published a book, which in English was later on called In Garage Land, Rock Youth and Modernity, and was about, we studied more ethnographically three young teenage groups who played rock music as mm -hmm. amateurs, mm -hmm. and we studied um, the learning processes that they, that that activity gave rise to. And we, uh, and from different angles, yeah. Right. And so we used them partly the same because we also there we had these uh, columns with the interview excerpts juxtaposed to our analysis, which we found interesting way, and, and which I think could have been done much more uh, in an even more interesting way in with modern computer technology and right. online product. Sure, sure. At that time, we had to do it everything on paper ourselves and, you know, with glue and scissors <laughs> and so on. Yeah. So this is in Garage Land. In Garage Land. And what year does that come out? That's Routledge book. Routledge book, yes. yeah. Is and it came out in English in 95, but it was published 88 in Swedish. Right. Uh, and then... We, I had already started a, a very a quite big uh, network project on youth culture called Youth Culture in Sweden, based, uh, simply. It consisted of 70 people, Swedish researchers, in all lots of disciplines. And we went on for about five years. We published six Swedish volumes, six, six books on youth culture from different angles. And then we summarized that in two Swedish volumes, uh, English volumes. One is called Youth Culture in Late Modernity, edited by Jöran Bolin and me together. Yeah, a terrific book. I know this you book. You know it, yeah. yes. And it is, it's a selection of some of the articles from the Swedish. Yep. 
uh, books. And the other one was called Cultural Theory and Late Modernity. And it was my own uh, effort to synthesize different theories and theoretical approaches in cultural research, cultural studies. But it, it was also actually each chapter in that book came from, was introductory chapter to one of the Swedish volumes. So it's oh, kind interesting. Of, Whereas and in the Swedish volumes, it's, the focus was more on youth culture, whereas here I made it more general uh, yeah. to culture. And it's a terrific book. It's a book Thank that you. is um, renowned. on Sage. Rightly so, and that, that is with Sage. Thank you. So and then after that, I... Um, what about, sorry, does he, do you start the journal Young around this time? In Young, yes, I did. Uh, it was, I forgot the exact year, but they had celebrated some... <laughs> Maybe it was early 90s, around 90, I think. I, I've forgotten. Like, so it's now, 92, it has maybe. to be renamed Middle Age. It must be 92, 93, because I think they had uh, 25 years. No, it doesn't. I, I don't remember. 20 years. 20 years. So it's now, it's now called Middle Aged. It's Middle Aged, yes, 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 right. <laughs> um, yeah, we organized that. It was a Nordic initiative, so that was one editor from each country. Mm -hmm. But I was the first main editor for the first volume, mm -hmm. two, I think. And youth studies is drawing on a lot of the uh, angles of research and theories and methods that you're using, right? And ethnography, yeah. and political economy, and uh, textual, textual analysis. analysis yes. and, and really, I see your work as trying to blend those things yes, and they not are. accepting the distinctions, just no, as you right. indicated earlier when I, you talked about critical theory. I think that is something that I always uh, find interesting to do. And I, I cannot see that there must be a necessary gap between, for example, political economy and textual analysis or ethnography for that sake. Yeah, but um, I know that the situation is different in other contexts sometimes. Oh, you're being, you're being nice and Swedish now. It's like talking to a Canadian, <laughs> never wanting to give offence. You know, you know the joke about Canadians, they, you kick them in the shin and they say, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I hope I didn't hurt your toe. I'm sorry. No, but... Um, <laughs> well, like the English. The difference is the English say, I'm sorry, when they've just hit you. Oh. <laughs> they must apologise for being, you know, imperialistic, colonial yeah, aggressors. Right. But they must right. be very, very sorry. No, but I've always struck me... Well, with the, especially with the British um, conflict between cultural studies and political economy, as they call it, which I also think is a very... Uh, misleading name because if if you are a Marxist which you can be in some ways I am in some ways at least uh, then political economy is something that Marx was critical against so sure. his work was a critique, critique of it so it's yeah. better to call it economic critique in, if you want to call it if anything you, right. rather than political economy which is uh, subscribing to the bourgeois <laughs> way of looking of how economy sure. is uh, as something the distinction between private and public, exactly. that both Durkheim and Althusser exactly. criticise. So, but, but let's go back to that. Well, but, no, but no? I'll tell you okay. what I want to ask you about, and that is your relationship to Marxism, which you've just oh, mentioned. Yes. So obviously you were a true believer in certain ways, but very much from a social movement exactly. attitude rather than a Leninist yeah, I democratic had, centralist. In the alternative social and political movements that engaged me in the 70s, both the political ones and the more cultural ones in the music movement. Of course, Marx was uh, seen as an inspiring theoretician sure. who you cannot uh, avoid. So I, I was engaged already in the mid-70s and until 1983 when I moved, lived to Gothenburg. Um, I organized various a series of study circles with amateurs studying Marx Capital, actually, mm -hmm. uh, the whole all three volumes, and I wrote some introduction text to that uh, for that practical pedagogic purpose. And uh, these texts were in Swedish, and they were just drafts in a way. And uh, when I finished that, I uh, I still thought it was an interesting material that should be used some way. And uh, a couple of years ago, colleagues from Britain uh, heard about that. Was Bev Skeggs, by the way, mm. and uh, and said and encouraged me. He said, "We need these kind of texts. You must write them as a book and in English, not only in Swedish." So said and done. I sat down uh, half a year, I think, something like that, and made this book, new book, which was published last year. It's called uh, "Capitalism: A Companion to Marx's Economy Critique," and it is uh, based on those thirty-year-old manuscripts. <laughs> but of course, slightly updated and. Uh, I would hope so. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But you know, Marx doesn't change. <laughs> the text doesn't change. No, but uh, of course I had 
changed many things. But um, uh, it's hopefully useful as a no, it's as an introduction to uh, for those who want to some help of reading has, Marx. Has your view of these things changed based either on, for example, ethnography and the experience of encountering different groups and learning from them, or from the macroeconomy? Society in of terms course, of the, things the decline have of state socialism. Yeah, exactly. Things have changed. Or in terms of theoretical influences. All three can. Oh, yeah, one it's another. hard to summarize. But um, in a way, I never. Re I was inspired by Marx and Marxist theory and have made some use of it, but I've never been Marxist in the very strong sense of using or, or basing my thinking on Marx theories in whatever I've done since, because I haven't really, I have been quite unfaithful and that's why people have become, maybe they have been uh, surprised when they saw this last book because they didn't know of this early history, mm -hmm. because in my later writings I've been more inspired maybe by people like Habermas or Paul Ricoeur has recently been an important mm -hmm. hermeneutic philosopher, is my main maybe inspiration the last 10, 20 years, um, and others so as well. But so, um, so I haven't been so strict in them, uh, just pursuing a Marxist line. But he has more become he has been one of the many classical thinkers thinkers that are important for how we understand the world today, like Freud or others as well. Um, changes, yeah, it depends. Of course, many things are. No, that's a very difficult question to pose, but changes, sure. because it's, um, in a way, he has had a new actuality. I think it was yes. much more difficult in the late 80s and early 90s to think of Mar writing this yep. Marx book, because yep. nobody then was really interested in uh, in him <laughs> anymore. Yeah. It was yep. uh, postmodernism and uh, more, either those, some persons were neoliberal or some were more leftist, but it didn't matter. All of them were interested in other aspects. Yeah. I was also perhaps a bit more interested in altern other kinds of alternative movements, feminism, uh, ecology, the green movement and so on. And that, at that time, they, Marx was not seen as so important. But after the financial crisis and also the collapse, I think, of the Berlin Wall, the 1989 collapse of East mm -hmm. Europe, mm -hmm. which I, by the way, never thought was a model society, because even at that time we in a mic, the part of the left that I came from, neither China nor the Soviet Union was at all any socialist country, actually, but a more uh, an author, authoritarian dictatorship, which is disguised into yeah. socialist. So, so in a way, they falling away in that way was maybe a help because it could free Marxism or socialists from the burden of being defended against those. Well, it's very interesting Corrupt. now that there is this loathing of Russia. Yeah. That cold warriors of having to think actually the whole thing was not about evil secularism versus Christianity. The mm. whole thing was not about capitalism versus socialism. It was about competing imperial designs yeah, and narratives and histories. Yeah. You know, and that that is coming into very sharp focus, I think. Mm. So. But of course, I can notice other things that I didn't see then that Marx was missing also. I mean, I'm still very fond of his way of writing and I am very fascinated by his philosophical um, projects, so to speak. And I, I think that is very much inspiration to fetch mm. from his concepts of imminent critique or of the real, real abstractions or other aspects, dialectics and so on. But um, it's striking, for example, strange that he... Uh, he never writes about marketing, <laughs> which is uh, to be today hard to think of having at least a cultural perspective on economics, which wouldn't discuss marketing or sure. advertisements and so on. And also he had such faith on in uh, not only in cooperatives, but also in, uh, what is it called, stock exchange firms, what is it called, I forgot the English word, Axibolar, Axing is Hell Chapter. What is that? Oh, it's um, called uh, stockbrokers. Stockbrokers, yeah, which he thought was a way of uh, um, dismantling capitalism because yeah. it was uh, the private owners disappeared. Right. They were not so important, but of course, yeah, history it's soon mean, showed that it's not. It's a means of spreading the risk. Yeah, so certain things are <laughs> a bit surprising, but on the other hand, he was also 
he wrote quite well about uh, environmental disasters. Absolutely. That and globalization and, globalization. and externalization. So there are sort of many good things. Yeah, yeah. The Reserve yeah. Army of Labor, all yeah. these things that are Definitely. relevant to us. That today. are relevant today, and the financial crisis in particular has pointed to the uh, accumulation of wealth as the main problem in society, yeah, so to yeah, speak. Yeah. And so the systematic inequality that's definitely instantiated by neoliberal mm. regulation is so, so apparent. Well, we've got about 10 minutes left, <laughs> and we've gone on to this Marx riff, but there are a couple of books down there we haven't talked about yet, including we say Signifying Europe, Signifying Europe and Consuming the Media. Yeah, I can say something very briefly about consuming media first yep. because it came uh, earlier. We had, um, after this youth culture research, where I, was, uh, I worked together with several other media scholars. Um, Joran Bolin was one of them, Adding Buhström, Hilipe uh, Garnets, my wife, now Karin Becker, who is in, in visual culture studies and so on. We, and 10 other people roughly, we organized the collective ethnographic work where mm. we studied media and culture in a shopping center. We, we, our main inspiration was Walter Benjamin with his uh, arcades project. Mm -hmm. It's called Passagen Pro uh, Arbeit mm -hmm. in Germany and Passages. So it's about passages. Our project was therefore called the Passages Project. And we thought that we, like he studied uh, the French um, arcades in Paris as a kind of a model for un understanding modern urban life and its, uh, its various aspects. We thought, what is the best space to study late modern society <laughs> and the media and communication processes? And we thought a shopping center must be perfect. So we studied one such shopping center very closely through ethnographic work for five years. And we published also four Swedish volumes, so it was much in Swedish. And we finally made this summary or concluding volume in English called Consuming Media, Communication, Shopping and Everyday Life, which is about many different things about consumption practices and also the power over the public urban space, which struck us as so uh, as a big and complicated issue in uh, the modern city centers. Where certain areas are both, in this case, we, in this shopping center, it was the center of a small Swedish town north of Stockholm that was transformed into a shopping center. So it mm -hmm. was still the square of the town square and so on, the streets that were mm -hmm. had a glass roof and suddenly mm -hmm. different rooms. And Consuming Media, when did that come out? In 2007. 2007. And um, so it, it contains many different things about public space, about intermedial relations and how media are separated from each other, but also united. And also a complicated process of selecting materials from a very large, multi-handed Swedish project for oh, yes. reduction into English. Yeah, I don't know how that works. Maybe that doesn't work, really, because it's a, it's a problem we have, we non-anglophones, because we, we want maybe to publish many things first in Swedish because it's a native language and it's a language that is closest to our... Mm. What we study, we study things. People speak in Swedish, so we need maybe first to discuss them in Swedish as well. But yeah. then when we tr when we want to formulate ourselves in English, we cannot translate all the four Swedish volumes into English. That would be, No publisher would like to publish four volumes on the Swedish shopping, yeah. shopping center. Yeah. So we have to make some condensation, and it's, it's a tricky thing if it works or not. It's hard for me to say. We try to make, make it work, but um, sometimes it might be difficult. Maybe we run too fast from one subject to another in such books because we... We have so much to cover, much we want to say, and we, we can. You need a fetish, like what they call Scandi Noir in Britain, Scandinavian yeah, yeah, Noir, yeah, yeah, right? You need to get a, 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 a Anglo fetish about you. Yeah, I remember once being asked. Maybe we could use that nowadays. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember being asked to review for publication in English translation of a seven-volume history of football in a country whose name I won't mention because it's such a small country that it wouldn't take long to find what it was. But it begins with M and it has <laughs> five letters. So there are probably about eight people in this country and there's a almost a volume for every single person. 
and their contribution to football. Seven volume history of football in this five letter country mm. beginning with <laughs> M. I mean, really. And I looked at Fantastic. this and I said, they cannot be serious. No one, I mean, no, no library even is going to no. buy this. I mean, maybe an article. Yeah. But, but did they publish it in India? No, no they no, didn't. They didn't. And I. You couldn't recommend it. I couldn't, no. really, to be honest. I just felt this is ludicrous. They said, "What? will you set this as an undergraduate mm. textbook? And I said, well, actually, no one will set seven volumes of the history of football in a mm. five-letter country beginning in M mm. as an undergraduate. Not even people there. Anyhow. But, no, but it is interesting, this mm. problem of no, being it from is. It is. a place that is wealthy, mm. supports lots of really mm. progressive, independent scholarly inquiry, mm has its own publishing industry, mm. is full of people who are very good at speaking English, mm. um, but has this dilemma, has a, mm. has a series of dilemmas that flow from that. Yeah. And in fact, when we were talking about Culture Unbound, which appears in English mm. principally, it is. Uh, only. only in English, um, one of the issues was this question of the hegemony of yeah. um, the yeah. English language. At the workshop so that was discussed. Yeah, yeah, we. I've written about that also together with a Finnish scholar, Mikko Lehtonen, once an article about this, uh, the hegemony of English, that also we ourselves reproduce. For example, yeah. it's very strange when we write, especially when we write in English, we don't refer much to each other because instead we, we think it's more important to refer to the yeah. big thinkers from Britain or the United States or maybe France sometimes also because they yeah. are introduced. But... Uh, but we rarely write about other Scandinavian authors who have written in Swedish and so on. Partly because we know that our English readers won't know about them or they won't be able to read their Swedish work. But also, in that way, we contribute to making ourselves invisible, mm -hmm. I think, to the world outside. Because we yeah. reproduce this marginality ourselves. Yeah. Really. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. a, So I try, but it's difficult. I try to go against that, but it's very difficult. To, I fall in back into it myself all the time, but I tried to take care to make some references also to my, my Swedish and Nordic I think this colleagues. is tremendously important because yeah. especially when Sweden is often one of the topics that mm. you write about. It's this issue of making yeah. and I think into objects when I, they should I, also be subjects. Exactly. And I also think that uh, that is what for example Latin American authors have been better at doing because they maybe have more pride in their own culture. So they refer to each other more and they are more they, they do, but they also have an advantage in that they're publishing mostly in, in Spanish, Spanish yes, which is a big international yeah, language. That's true. They don't need to. You know, I mean well they do need to publish in English. They get more points mm -hmm. in their institutions if they do, and of course their work travels more to other speakers. But they're they are part of a world where there are over 20 countries where that's what everybody yeah, yeah, speaks. Right. You know, it is a different mm. political economy of scholarly activity. Yeah. But in some ways, that's to their cost. Anyway, moving Maybe. on, this is a good time to talk about signifying Europe. I think so, too. <laughs> that's my, uh, what I do mostly nowadays. Besides, I'm also involved a little bit in thinking about mediatization and mediatization theory, theory, which is a hot concept in some circuits in Europe, specifically today and maybe soon in the United States as well. But, but on a more concrete level, this European identity issues is something that I have been engaged in from uh, the early, since around 10, 15 years ago. Um, I started, it started actually with, with me... Um, I was part of a European network for media scholars called Changing Media, Changing Europe, organized by the Euro European, uh, what it's called, Science Foundation. <laughs> uh, it was like 70, around well, 60, 70 scholars in, in four different sub-themes, having two meetings every year around Europe. And we were supposed to write something at the end, some articles and anthologies, and one of them, one of uh, what I I didn't know what to study. I thought maybe it's writing something about music in Europe and so on. But but then uh, at one of our sessions we were in Palermo. I remember in in Italy, uh, on Sicily. And then uh, I we had the Euro money. It was in two thousand two when the Euro money was new. And I saw in my wallet that these coins. They, some of them had the Brandenburg Gate from Berlin, and some have the Irish Celtic harp. On them, and that's oh, fascinating. Europe exists here in my wallet. I can see that Europe mm -hmm. works. The different coins show the different countries. Yeah, interesting. 
So I became interested and made an analysis, an comparative analysis of the different uh, banknotes and because uh, bridges became a big thing. Didn't yeah, you? because but banknotes in um, uh, have as their motive on one side doors and windows, and on the other side uh, bridges. So I started with that, and I also was interested in the coins, which have one uh, pan-European side and one the back side is the reverse side is uh, national. So each nation who has mm. so I I wanted to see what symbolism what symbols do they use and how do they what does in what way do, do these symbols signify what Europe means and this is by the way for, for listeners who are outside this world the Nordic countries have been skeptical yeah. about the euro yeah and not and all are in the European Union like Britain like Britain <laughs> um, but they're not all well, in they the are in the European Union. Union, but not the Euro, I mean, Britain. Well, right, Britain. But, but Norway is not in the European Union. Norway Europe. and uh, Switzerland yeah. are European yeah. countries, for example, who are not... They're, they're wealthy, you know, Northern European countries that are not mm. yeah. in the Union itself. Mm. Sweden is in the European Union. But not has... Does does not, we don't never have Never changed over to the Euro. Exactly. That's true. Uh, and from, from the money study, which I published first separately in a little volume, I continued to be interested because it turned out that there are a series, there are lots of symbols for Europe that identify what Europe is about and what Europe means, but some of them have a more official status and have become that through the, have got that through the European Union, but also the Council of Europe. They have Ode to Joy. Yes, for example. You know them? That's fine. The anthem. The, what more? Which more do you know? There are five official oh. ones. Now, yeah. I'll test you. Well, I've just failed. I got 25% or 20%. I know what. Yeah, and, the, and I, the flag, of course, you should know. Yes, the flag. The flag. Yes. I mean, but, and then the money is so there so also. So what are the other anthems the, apart from Beethoven? No, only one anthem, I mean. I mean, there is one anthem, one flag, one money, one kind of currency, yeah. and then there is also one motto, which is... Oh, I see. I thought you meant there were five different versions no, one, of the music. Sorry. No, no, no. Okay, so I got past on that. I okay, that yes, you did. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you got yeah. the music right, yeah, of course. <laughs> the motto. I don't know what the, the motto, motto is. It's united in diversity, which uh -huh. is... An, uh, I could talk for hours on each of them yeah. because they are extremely interesting. Very I similar think. to the United States. Yeah, because the old one, they had not the present one because now they have in God we trust. The right. One. But before they have this... Um, a pluribus uno. Exactly. Out exactly. of which, one. Exactly. But... And, of course, each union probably has some motto which is about that is good to be yeah. together. And, yeah. But that you must attend to the details because <laughs> the American one says that instead, in a way, from being many, we are now one. Yeah. I, that is, before we were many different countries, but now we are just Americans. Yeah. Yeah. It's the melting pot view of... Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, whereas United in Diversity says instead that what seemed as a weakness, namely our fragmentation and the differences we have, is in fact our strength. So we are united not against our diversity, but in and through, and it's precisely the diversity that is why we unite and why we want, yeah. which is interesting. And um, then there is also a day, and nobody knows what Europe day is, almost not even in Europe. Uh, it's, it, but it doesn't matter. It celebrates, it's in May, and it celebrates um, the the Schumann Declaration, whereby the Cold and Steel Union, that was the forerunner to the European Union, was started. But it doesn't matter. But I go through these and, and in my book called Signifying Europe, which came out in 2012 also. And it's, um, it's, it was fascinating. I compare these symbols with other, for example, the European flag, which is a circle of stars on blue, uh, with other, lots of other symbols, the American flag, the African Union's flag, or... Chinese flag, for example, and it's very interesting to to study there what it might mean, and I cannot go into details here. But it, I think, many European symbols have, for example, some sense of elevation or uh, that you are selected for some higher purpose, like mm -hmm. the stars and they have the stars above. Mm -hmm. But also that there are uh, there is an interesting also in communication in many of them, like the bridges on the on the. Money, but also there, there are elements in the other symbols which I cannot go into now. So I made this comparative interpretations, you could say, which was interesting. But after that, after that book of study of symbols of Europe, uh, I, I have, I thought it would be interesting. So I, I devised a formed a project together with six, five other scholars here at Southern University, 
from different disciplines, uh, where we, we, it's called the project, it's called Narratives of Europe. And it is about not symbols, but narratives. So it, there is a kind of temporal development. We are interested in how Europe's history and future, so to speak, mm -hmm. are, are told. And uh, we don't study the Central European or West European narratives, but more the East European ones. So it's a focus on East Europe, mm. the more peripheral or alternative, you can say, narratives. And in that project, well, we have one art historian, one literary scholar, and a couple of, one studies uh, social movements and one studies uh, news media. I study the Eurovision Song Contest, which mm. is, of course, a very excellent, splendid uh, material to see how Europe is formulated. I both study the, the finals that have been in East Europe and also the, the songs that came from East Europe Wonderful. and that deal with Europe and in some way signify Europe and tell about it. Well, Johan, I hope that when that project comes to fruition, when you finish with it, you'll come back into the pod, maybe with some of your colleagues, yeah. and we can Would record another session. Yeah. Would that be feasible, do you think? Yeah, sure. All right. You're also welcome to visit us, or we come to you wherever Even you are. Even better, wherever I may be. Thank you so much. It was really great chatting. <laughs>